The following production is part of the We Be Geeks Podcast Collective. This podcast is brought to you in part by the Pop Insider. The Pop Insider has all the latest in news, merch reviews, and other geeky goodness. Whether you're a wizard, a Sith Lord, or a superhero, fuel your fandom at thepopinsider.com. Microphones and headphones provided by CAD Audio. CAD Audio, expression through innovation. Produced with podcasting gear from Tascam. Trust your audio to Tascam. Sound thinking. Forgive the interruption, but I believe this requires your attention. Meanwhile, at the above-ground underwater suborbital volcano lair... This is urgent. We need a response team. We're already putting together the best move. With all due respect, sir, so am I. I have a plan. <laughs> it's real! Mighty Marvel Geeks. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Team? No, no, no. We're a chemical mixture that makes camps. We're, we're a time bomb. Well then, son, you've got a condition. Your show about all things Marvel with Mike, Kylan, and Eric. What a bunch of losers. I am group. That I did know. These people may be isolated and unbalanced, but I believe with the right push, it can be exactly what you need. Suit up. I'm bringing the party to you. I have indeed been uploaded, gentlemen, online and ready. And welcome to another issue of Mighty Marvel Geeks. It is the intrepid trio, Kylan, Eric, and myself, Mike. And we are honored to have with us a voiceover actor that has done a lot of our childhood and still does quite a bit today with video game stuff. But we're not talking about video games. Uh, we're going to first start off by talking about his book, Vocal Recall, A Life in Radio and Voiceover. And the author of that book and the voice of some of your favorite cartoon characters of the past and present, Neil Ross. How's everyone doing? Everybody is great, as far as I know. Good to hear. <laughs> Same here. Yeah, I'm, I'm geeking out right now. So, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> so, I was reading a bit of your book uh, that you sent us ahead of time, and links for your book will be available in the show notes. But you can also check out the book on Amazon, on Audible, um, on your website, if I remember correctly. Yes, I have a website devoted to the book. It's uh, um, www.neilbook.com. Uh, Which you and remember, and it's also available as an audiobook on Apple. Again, these links will be in the show notes, or go to our Twitter page, and they and I put them up on Twitter uh, on Thursday, which is the day that we're recording the show. So they are all there, uh, and they're going to go up again this weekend uh, while you're listening to the show again. So tell us a little bit about the book. What inspired you to write it? What's it about? Um, well, it's about six hundred and some odd pages. Uh, I don't know what I don't know what happened. I, I started as a monologue, and it just uh, got completely out of control. And at a certain point, uh, I thought, "Am I actually writing a book?" Which I never thought I could do. And the only way I was able to get through this is I would say, "I'm not writing a book. I'm not writing a book. I'm just writing this chapter." And once that's done, who knows? And then I would finish that chapter and I would think of another one. And I would say, well, I'm just writing this chapter. That's all I'm doing. I'm not writing a book. <laughs> and eventually I got to a point where I thought, I'm actually going to finish this sucker. <laughs> it's basically an autobiography, my, my life. Uh, not a whole lot on the personal side. It's mostly the professional stuff. It's a chronicle of how I discovered radio, uh, became a disc jockey, did that for upwards of 20 years. And then made the, the jump from uh, disc jockey to voiceovers in the early 80s. And the analogy I use is uh, disc jockey work is like driving a cab. Uh, voiceover work is like uh, driving in the Indy 500. Uh, <laughs> both involve driving, but it's a very different experience. And I talk about all the shows I was in and uh, voiceovers I've done for feature films and television shows and sitcoms and... Uh, there's this brief chapter on games. It's uh, we can get into that if you want or not. But uh, it's just basically the story of my career, my life, and my career. 
Now, you you had during your chapters on uh, your voiceovers uh, for cartoons and your shows uh, an interesting story about Jonathan Winters. Yeah. What, could you could you share that with those who haven't read the book yet? Because I found it so interesting and this is so awesome. Yeah, it's funny. Not too many people bring that up, but uh, and I wonder, you know, how many of the younger folks even are aware of him. I first heard about him from my parents. I was uh, in high school, I think, and uh, they would stay up later. I was banished to bed at a certain hour, and they would stay up and they would watch the Tonight Show. And this was in the pre-Johnny Carson days. This was when a guy named Jack Parr was hosting it. Yeah. And he's really good at finding up, up-and-coming comedians. And it wasn't like it is now with laugh factories on every corner and all kinds of, you know, the comedy channel and all the rest of it. Uh, you really had to sort of search these guys out because they basically just worked nightclubs. And you might see a comedian on Ed Sullivan once in a while. But uh, for some reason, Parr was really good at finding these people. And my parents one morning at breakfast were just raving about this young man they had seen the previous evening on uh, on The Tonight Show. And they were trying to explain what he did, and they just couldn't. They said, you'll just have to experience it for yourself. We have a feeling he's going to be a huge uh, hit. And I finally did, of course. First, only heard winters on record albums. That's basically how you heard comedians in those days, unless you could go to a nightclub or Vegas. And, uh, of course, I, I, it took me a long time to realize I was only getting about 50% of his act because so much of what he did was visual. I, uh, the, the faces he would make, it was just absolutely brilliant. I, if you're not familiar with Jonathan Winters, uh, go on YouTube. There's, got a, there's tons of his appearances. He, you know, he could take a, uh, Parr would do this with him. He would hand him a stick and say, Jonathan, go to town. And Jonathan would ad lib with a stick about eight different characters and situations all involving just this stick. I mean, it was the damnedest thing you've ever seen. He was a, just a brilliant improviser. And I was a huge fan. I was very influenced by him. Who wasn't? I mean, anybody who does an old lady voice like this is stealing more <laughs> from Jonathan Winters. I don't care. It's... That's it. That's the, the old lady we all do is Moff Dick Rickert. <laughs> I think you do a better Moff Rickert than Jonathan Winters did. <laughs> That's awesome. Johnny Carson stole it. That became Aunt Blabby. Uh, you know, I mean, he was just a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant guy anyway. I end up in this show called Little Dracula, which played very briefly yeah. in the States. But I'm told it was fairly successful in England. God knows why. I played a character named Maggot, but Jonathan Winters was cast in it. And I mean, I would have paid money to attend those sessions just to get to be around Jonathan. And it was quite amazing. He, not to disrespect anybody who has this condition, but it was almost like comedy Tourette's. He couldn't stop. If there was any sort of lull in the action, he would suddenly go into a bit. Well, Henri, we've been up here in the Yukon. How long is it, my friend? Oh, we have been here many, many years. I mean, he would just go on and on. Like and finally, you know, you hear, okay, we got to go back to work. And you go, why are we recording this dumb script? Just record what he's doing and animate it. I don't think it's occurred to anybody. Just bring Jonathan in, let him riff, and then animate whatever he comes up with. But nobody ever did that. And so uh, just just to get to be in this guy's presence uh, was such a treat. And uh, it, it sort of had a little bit of a dark side to it because he seemed to be under a compulsion. He couldn't stop doing this stuff. And I read uh, somewhere else that he, he was quoted as saying something like these voices live in my head and they're they're screaming to get out. And and he he um, he if there was, as I said, if there was even a nanosecond of silence, he would start in on something. And it, it, I thought it's got to be very wearying to have a mind like that. I mean, he's brilliant. He's hysterically funny. But in a way, it, 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 it how does he ever relax? How does he ever calm down with those voices oh. trying to get out all the time? Oh. It was, I, I, as I say in the book, I don't know if I've ever met a genius in my life, but if I have, it would have have to be him a comedy genius i agree with you i mean oh, it's yeah. 
it's hard to it's hard to watch videos of winners and not be impressed uh-huh, and uh-huh. and well not and also to not laugh for that matter because uh, you're right i mean the man could could just improvise like nobody else i've ever seen uh with not even not even robin williams and let's be honest robin williams could improvise the heck out of stuff that's true that's and true. that in that season where they brought winters in to mork and mindy oh yeah I just I would love to have been a fly on the set just to hear what all would go on there. Oh, one one of the more popular Johnny Carson sketches that have been appearing at least on my Facebook feed is the one with Robin Williams and Jonathan Winters, who's dressed in a Civil War uniform yeah. on the Johnny Carson show on, on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and it's well, uh, unbelievable. Uh, uh, Robin Williams said that Jonathan was his major influence, and. Uh, I, I gather they were great friends, uh, you know, in, in personal life. And yeah, yeah, I mean, probably the only one I can think of who comes close to being as fast as, as, as Winters was would have been Robin Williams. Sure. Uh, you know, they they were very similar and, and both of them brilliant and both, you know, I guess... I guess, uh, as as uh, I quoted in the book, Truman Capote wrote once that whenever God hands you a gift, he also hands you a whip, and that whip is intended for self-punishment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, both of right. those guys, I think, had their demons. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the first cartoon that you, or first show you were ever booked on as a voice actor? Uh, out and Out first would have been uh, a, a version of Spider-Man that was recorded in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, directed by Wally Burr. And he, uh, he was, uh, I owe a lot of my career to Wally. He brought me in when I had never done any of this stuff. I mean, I was a wannabe San Diego disc jockey who used to sit and watch the uh, cartoons on Saturday mornings and wonder if there was any way in hell I could do any of this stuff. And there was nobody around to say, yeah, sure, or forget about it. So I just had to finally come up and take a shot. So Wally brought me in to do a little two and three line parts incidental stuff which was just perfect you know because then there wasn't a lot of pressure you you know the big kids handled the big parts and i would be the parking lot attendant you know mm-hmm. just give me the keys sir and i'll put it away for you or whatever <laughs> the one was and then the other one that i remember around that time it wasn't the first but it was the first time i got to work at hanna barbera <clears throat> driving into that studio they actually had a guard at the gate almost like a you know movie studio and i said my name and my god the heavens parted and the guy said <laughs> Come on in and the gate went up and i thought wow and that was an episode of uh, richie rich Oh, wow. And oh. A, a pushy salesman who gets his tie caught in the door. And uh, here I was with people like Joni Gerber and Lenny Weinrib and Michael oh, wow. Bell. Wow. You know, to me, it was like, uh, you know, a young guy walking on the set and there's Clark Gable and Olivia de Havilland and you name it, you know, because these people were stars in the animation game in those days. Now, when you mentioned the Spider-Man series, um, for those who may not know which Spider-Man series he's talking about, is the you could catch it on Disney Plus. It's Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Is that the now? That's not the early one from the from the late seventies. That's the one that I was involved in in the nineties. Is that the one you're talking about? No, that would be the one from the seventies. Uh, oh, okay, into the seventies, beginning of the eighties. Uh, and if I were, and you were Norman Osborn, yes, but not the Goblin in that. But the, no. but the Spider-Man, but we'll go ahead and segue into the Spider-Man of the 90s, uh, where you re- reclaimed the role of Norman Osborn and got to do Goblin. But originally you were brought in and were auditioning along with Mark Hamill for Hobgoblin? Yeah, I was one of the uh, people that auditioned for Hobgoblin. I don't know who else did besides Mark. I know Mark did because he got it. And as I as I say in the book, I, I did not know Mark. I knew who he was, obviously, but I had never seen him work, never met him. And uh, my agent called and said, well, you didn't get uh, that Hobgoblin thing. They gave it to Mark Hamill. And I and I didn't say it out loud, but mentally I thought, eh, star casting. What are you going to do? 
And then uh, some time went by and I read for the Green Goblin and I got the part and I came in and I got to see Mark at work and I absolutely, my jaw hit the floor. I had no idea how great he was. I, you know, I'd seen him in Star Wars. That's all I knew. But as you guys, I'm sure, are well aware by now, I mean, he's an incredibly versatile voice talent. And he, and I'm, I listened to what he did with Hobgoblin. I said, I would have given him the part. You know, I would have chosen him over me. <laughs> You know, it wasn't star casting at all. He was great. So and, what So yeah. what was it like walking back into the shoes many years later in, into the shoes of Norman? It's funny. I, I don't I almost forgot that I had done that previously. I mean, almost 15 years had gone by and I think somebody pointed it out to me. <clears throat> but my memory of the thing was the big deal was who was going to do Green Goblin. Uh-huh. And if my if memory serves, the director, Tony Pastor, told me. Uh, you know, you got the goblin part. And he said, I've told them because I'd worked with him in previous shows. He said, I've told him you're very versatile and that you can do Norman Osborn easy. So you might as well do that as long as you're going to do the goblin. So I ended up doing both, which was great. That's very cool. This is crazy because I just watched that episode like not even two weeks ago. <laughs> That's nuts. It, it was. Uh, and if I remember correct, this Spider-Man is also on Disney Plus. That's where I watched it. Yeah. Yeah. It's on Disney Plus. So you would be correct sir mm-hmm. was that was that the scene where he's talking to himself in the mirror and he's going in and out of yes yes yeah yes he yeah, had, uh... somebody sent me a link to that and they <sighs> said did you do that all in one take or did they cut it together and i god isn't it funny i had no memory of doing it at all i'm staring at this thing going wow that's not half bad <laughs> <laughs> How the hell did I do that? I don't remember. Uh, I'd like to think I did it all in one gigantic, brilliant take, but it's possible that they had to glue it together. I don't recall. But it's a pretty good scene. Well, and were I'm you familiar with the my own stuff? Huh? Were Were you familiar with the character at the time, or 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 was this just all you? Uh, I you know I I was a I read comic books up to a certain point, and then I discovered Mad Magazine, and that was the end of the comic books. So I probably wasn't as familiar with it as I should have been. But I guess I did okay faking it, you know. I, well, okay. Being at because at that point, I I read a fair amount of Spider-Man comics. You knocked it out of the park. <laughs> I, you know, because you. I mean, even going back and watching it now, I'm like, especially like that scene where where Norman and you're you're fading between Norman and Green Goblin. I thought that you know this just blew my mind because you you did that just from reading the script. It wasn't like oh, I read these comics. I knew these characters no. you you just did that well, that's wow well i'm i'm well, curious and go ahead i'm sorry i was gonna say a lot of it a lot of the credit should go to the director tony pastor he he pushed me and he he wanted whatever you heard that's what he wanted and uh, i would leave some sessions with a splitting headache because he'd just have me scream these lines over and over and over again and until he got what he wanted and obviously what he wanted was exactly what was called for so Good deal of the credit should go to him. Was it? Was there a push for you to kind of give a portrayal of Nor- of Norman similar to what Willem Dafoe gave in the movie, or were you allowed to to bring your own essence into it and and not be uh, copying, so to speak? I'm pretty sure that uh, the movie happened after I had finished recording all the all the Spider-Man stuff. Yeah, because the movie was in the 90s. Uh, uh, no, early 2000s. That's right. That's yeah. Right. As a matter yeah. of fact, I was when I was watching the Willem Dafoe mirror scene, I was thinking about that episode. Huh. Wow. <laughs> you influenced Willem Dafoe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I always tell him, listen, uh, Mr. Defoe is a fine actor and he doesn't need any coaching from me. I'm sure what he came up with was what he came up with, you know. If it wasn't Willem Defoe, it was Sam Raimi who inspired that scene from the show. Yeah. Now, um, I want to go back some to the, the first time cartoons were starting to appear on weekday afternoons. Because um, if I remember right, Reagan had deregulated the FCC some to, to open up things. 
Um, well, he had a, a chap who uh, felt the same way he did about deregulation. So I've forgotten the man's name, but he instituted a lot of changes that made it economically feasible to run uh, these television, uh, children's television shows in the afternoons. They took away some of the restrictions on the commercial load and all of that. And that, that's when the animation business in yeah. L.A. Just exploded. And well, I was lucky to be at ground zero when that happened. So here comes two cartoons inspired by toys from Hasbro that also inspired Marvel Comics and were under the Marvel Comics license during that time. We're talking G.I. Joe and Transformers, and you happen to be in both. Yes. So let's start off with G.I. Joe. You, if I remember your book right, the chapter on this, you started off as a dreadnought named yes. Buzzer. That's right. He was buzzer. He had a, what did he have? What do you call it? Um, oh, God, why can't I think of it? Uh, uh, chainsaw. Chainsaw. There you are. That's a fun, Somebody told me a brilliant line, by the way. He said, I, I come from a small town in Oregon, or, or Oregon, I guess is the way they say it. He said, uh, let me describe what it's like to live there. He says, you go to a movie theater to see the great Ch uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and you hear a guy behind you going, oh, that's phony. You wouldn't use a McCullough under those circumstances. <laughs> 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 I could totally see that, by the way. Yeah, uh, I digress. Uh, uh, yeah, I was I was buzzer with the chainsaw and uh, the blonde hair and uh, the Cockney accent. Right, right. That was the first role I had in G.I. Joe. Actually, one of my favorite dreadnoughts. Yeah, the one, as far as I know, is a figure only because he was a uh, Joe Con exclusive, and that's the dreadnought that was based out of Kissimmee, Florida, which I'm still looking for. Hmm. Which is, oh, where I, which is where I live now. Um, then you also did other roles like Monkey Wrench, Heavy Metal, Dusty, yep, yep, Thunder. Yep. And then, as, as you said, someone who outranked you, uh, and that was your character Shipwreck, which is the character you became most well-known for. Right. Um, how does Shipwreck come about, and how, how did his voice come about? Well, I was called to audition, and I showed up uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed about 9 o'clock in the morning at Wally's place, and the old place on Ventura Boulevard. And they had a picture of a guy in a sailor outfit and a little one-paragraph description, and I absorbed as much of that as I could. And I went in, and they had some lines, and I began to do them, and I could tell that everybody there was sort of underwhelmed. And I couldn't think of anything else to do, and I was about to say, well, it's been fun, uh, and, and leave. And a guy was sitting over in the corner and he said, have you ever seen a movie called The Last Detail? And this light bulb exploded over my head. The Last Detail was a movie starring Jack Nicholson. And it was a small uh, movie, uh, but a, a very interesting, heartfelt uh, film. Uh, directed by Hal Ashby, and uh, it was uh, Nicholson was so good in it that he was nominated uh, for Best Actor in the in the Oscars. He did not win that year, but he was nominated. Well, in very quick succession, the next couple of years, out came One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest yeah. and Chinatown, and everybody sort of forgot about the last detail. Uh, in it, Nicholson plays this sort of ne'er-do-well. Uh, sailor who's given this unpleasant assignment of having to escort this younger sailor to the brig where he's going to do eight years for some petty crime. And Nicholson and his buddy decide they're going to show this kid one last good time before he goes to prison. And they have all sorts of misadventures. And there was one scene in it in particular where this bartender uh, doesn't want to serve them because one of them is black and uh, Nicholson gets mad and they start hollering at each other and the bartender says, you want me to call the shore patrol? And Nicholson, because of the detail he's on, has been issued a 45 semi-auto, so he hauls this giant thing out and slams it on the bar screaming, you want the shore patrol? We are the mother bleeping shore patrol. Bang with the gun. Huh? Oh my gosh, I it, got goosebumps. <laughs> it's a great it's a great scene. I think you can still find it on YouTube. Last detail bar scene. Anyway, that's what was in my head as I read those lines again. And the the way I got to the voice was it was a sort of a voice that I've been doing for a while, sort of an all-purpose stoner voice, you know, a guy who's maybe had one one or two tokes too many, and he's kind of, you know, a little ripped. And uh, 
people would occasionally say, it sounds a little Nicholson-esque. So I, what if I take his bong away and give him a couple of pots of coffee and all of a sudden he's going to get really intense and really come at it hard. And that's what I did in the audition. And when I finished, the guy in the corner said, you got it, which is usually the kiss of death. And when they tell you, you got it, don't got it. But in this case, no, I did got it. And uh, my agent called me about a week later and said, well, you got the sailor part, sweetie. <laughs> now, you you don't say anything in the book about who the man in the corner was. Do you know? Well, I never saw him before. I never saw him again. I don't know who the hell he was. I wish he'd get in touch. I should probably send him some money. <laughs> wow. Something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Up I remember right, the yeah. first time that I saw Shipwreck, and it was like uh, one of the multi-part is like the be- the beginning of like, I guess, the, the second season mm-hmm. uh, where he's he's basically there's there's a bar brawl and he's just sitting there in the corner with a newspaper. <laughs> yeah. I, and I'm just in once all the bodies had hit the floor, he just pipes up and says, I'm guessing you're not on Cobra's sweetheart list or something mm-hmm. like that. And I'm like, I immediately like this character. <laughs> no, they wrote him a great entrance scene. That's the scene you're talking yeah. about. Yes. Yeah, so that's the first episode. That's how his character was introduced. Yeah. It was wonderful. Uh, I think I think it was Bill Ratner as um, as Flint, and I can't remember who the other character was. There were two of uh, them. But if I remember correctly, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I will say because of the show. Now, my brother and I both collected GI Joes, and we tended a lot of times to not get duplicate characters because he had a group that he he would go with. I had a group I would go with, but shipwreck was one. We both had a shipwreck because we mm. couldn't share. <laughs> we couldn't share. That's how much we love shipwreck. Well, I got to tell you, it was a wonderful part to play. Uh, what I love about the guy, if you think about it, everybody else in the show is either really, really good or really, really bad. But shipwreck, he wanted to be a good guy, but he didn't like taking orders. And he kind of did things his own way, and that got him into trouble. And that made it such an interesting character to play as opposed to just a straight ahead uh, good guy type. Uh, Really, of, of all, I think of all the stuff that I've done in animation over the years, well, you know, Green Goblin, Norman Osborn, that was a real treat. But the but shipwrecks right up there too. Those those were both very rewarding parts. I'm so lucky to have had them. Tell I, you. I liked him because he seemed more fleshed out and more yeah. three dimensional, for lack of a better word. Uh, because you had all these other characters. They were I don't want to say the word one dimensional, but a lot of them were gimmick characters. Like Gung Ho, he was a marine, and that's all he was. Yeah. Uh, you know, Duke of course was just like the all American quarterback from high school, that sort of thing. Shipwreck reminded me a lot of the original Starbuck from Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. He was, uh, he was, he was kind of a, he had a bit of a scoundrel to him. He was a good guy at heart, yeah. but he, he wasn't, he wasn't going to volunteer he, for he, a lot of stuff. He was G.I. Joe's Han Solo. There you go. Yeah, I like so. and, yeah. and one of my favorite episodes was when he was the one tabbed to be the double agent to, um, if I'm remembering right, to, to go through the Cobra recruiting. Hmm. Yeah. I may re- I may not be remembering right. But I remember he he was either captured and tried to w- w- was accidentally captured but on purpose for some mission mm-hmm. do something to infiltrate Cobra and and kind of slow down plans some. And it was like he was the perfect character for it because well, he didn't want to follow follow orders. Yeah. yeah. Looking at it from the outside, you would assume if they could turn anybody it would be him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, can you think of the title of that episode? I'd like to go look at it because uh, I, I, not... I don't. I'm going to have to research it. But when I do, I will email you. Yeah, please do. Because I have the box set, so I can I can put it anytime I want to. That that is that is something I need to get again. Is the box set yeah. now? Me though, I think my favorite shipwreck episode. Actually, there it's more than one, but this is the main one. Is um, I think it's called "There's No Place Like Springfield." Yes, basically he's he's captured by Cobra, and he's made to think that it's like you know twenty years down the line, and and um, Mar. 
Mara, the 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 mermaid lady. You know, she's been cured, so she can live on land. And <laughs> and the Joes have disbanded, and just the the whole thing is it's kind of like a, a Truman Show type scenario where you know it's all an act, and just the whole the whole gut wrenching process of realization when he finally realized that it's all fake. Mm-hmm. And the, you could tell the part, and this is you know you say animation can't be powerful, just this part where he realized and Mara lied to me. Mm-hmm. I, I think this is the episode I was thinking of. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah a lot of fans reference. It was actually a two parter. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah. A lot of fans uh, reference those two as, as having really had a profound effect on them at the age of 12 or 13, not quite as devastating as the death of Optimus Prime. Well, no, but, <laughs> no, but... but it's, it had a very profound effect. It was sort of like, <laughs> I don't know what, their first, their first introduction to, uh, I don't know, film noir, something like that, you know. Well, yeah. it, you know, like up to that point, like Shipwreck, was, he was the bad boy, you know, and mm-hmm. he, he just didn't care. You know, he, he, he flirt with CoverGirl and you know, make her mad enough to want to slap him. And so that was, you no, know, that was fun. But all of a sudden, you kind of saw that he had feelings and, mm-hmm. you know, he just went through this whole mind game and, you know, he wasn't sure what was real anymore. And, you know, coming home from school on Saturday after, uh, on a, uh, like a Monday, Tuesday afternoon and watching that, I'm like, I'd probably go back and watch it now and still get the feels for it. Mm-hmm. it that was oh, yeah. really good. Homework can wait till after G.I. Joe and Transformers are done. That's exactly how it was at my house. Yes. So, yes. Um, now, I, like I said, we, we know Shipwreck's the one that if a, a Cobra officer or one of their mercenary, Cobra mercenaries came up to Shipwreck and said, yeah, I need to take you in. Shipwreck's going to shoot him first, just like Han Solo. But, um, and, and we've talked about our favorite episodes. What's What's been your favorite episode as Shipwreck? Well, it's probably the one we just got through discussing because that was, that was, probably uh his uh, finest hour if you will uh at least uh, the way it was written uh, just a wonderful opportunity for an actor to go through all those different that roller coaster of emotions and uh i think probably the springfield episodes would be it yeah springfield episodes are great um now with some of the other characters like monkey wrench heavy heavy metal dusty and thunder do they do you just walk in and they go, uh, we want you to do these roles today? Or is that another audition process, even though you're already on the show? I, as m- My memory is that any sort of major recurring character, uh, you would have to audition. Uh, you know, a one shot, a parking lot attendant, a cop, something like that, that, that they would assign at this session. <clears throat> the way it worked uh, in those days, and I think it's still the same today, is they get uh, three voices for the price of one. There's a slight extra charge for the third voice, but uh, usually, you know, you come in, you're going to play a primary character like Shipwreck. And then uh, the director, Wally, in this case, would say, oh, and I need you to do the cop and the parking lot attendant. I don't know why I keep saying parking lot attendant. But, you know, incidental roles, people that characters that you're you're not going to see again, they're just incidental roles. And uh, so those would get assigned. But everything else we read for. Okay. So Shipwreck ends up being the one you're known for. Do, do people at, at shows recognize you for the other roles as well? Or is it just primarily Shipwreck? Um, you mean uh, the other characters in G.I. Joe? Or, yes. Or, well, Shipwreck gets most of the, uh, most of the applause. Uh, once in a while, people reference uh, Buzzer or somebody else. But no, it's uh, Shipwreck. Uh, believe me, that's, that's the big one. That's the one they want to talk about. I sometimes even uh, I put together an outfit and uh, <laughs> I, you know, I thought, ah, do I want to do this? You know, some this old geezer uh, in a sailor suit. This is this could be really depressing. But people said, no, 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 it's great. Do it, do it, do it. So I've done it at a number of shows. I got I got a fairly authentic uh, shipwreck outfit and I I wear it as I sign autographs and people seem to enjoy it. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, now, out out of the uh, the Transformers characters that you have voiced, uh, which one do you get recognized more than others? Would it be like Slag or one of the Constructicons, maybe? 
Well, I think the winning character in Transformers for me is Springer. That's the one that they, they love. Although, you know, there's a, a fair amount of interest in Hook, Slag, and Bone Crusher, but Springer is the one that they, they seem to like the most. And he's got that famous line from the movie. I assume we all know what that line is. I got better things to do tonight than die. That's the line. That's, That's the, my favorite. <clears throat> you know, as, as an actor, that you, you know, it's you know, Clint Eastwood has make make my day, and I've got I've got better things to do that tonight than die, because, and it's funny. I I uh, went to the premiere of the movie in Westwood, the same theater that they used in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and. Um, that line came out, and the whole place went nuts. They jumped in the air, screaming, yelling. The next, you know, 30 seconds of dialogue, nobody heard because they were yelling about it. I thought, oh, I think I'm on to something here. I will admit that Springer was, my, was by far my favorite character from the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, e even the one that was voiced by a Monty Python character. But we won't, we won't mention him by name. <laughs> <laughs> that was a that was a strange uh, movie that, that whole that whole thing and of course killing off uh, optimus prime pretty much killed the movie to this day i don't know what the hell they were thinking and i don't think they do either but uh you know over the years people have sort of rediscovered it and uh they got older and wiser and more mature and went back and had a second look and i i i've lost track of the number of dvds and vhs's and movie posters i've signed it's got to be close to you know up into the thousands by now. There, there's a there's a band that was actually uh, inspired by the movie. It's called the Cybertronic Spree, and mm. uh, they, they actually about a year ago they they did a uh, they did a uh, a Kickstarter so that they could record the entire soundtrack. Mm. Uh, so, so they took the movie soundtrack and they they all redid it. And so I I have to admit, like I can hear like in my head, I put in little sound bites. And so, like during the uh, the the Battle of Cybertron, that's <laughs> I don't know. I for some reason that had yes, mm. like it has to fit in my head somewhere. So yeah, well, mm. well how how can you? Not knock an album or a soundtrack that includes Weird Al Yankovic. That's true. Yeah. And I actually am on a Weird Al Yankovic uh, album or CD. Really? Uh, yeah. Really? Uh, the song was uh, Can't Watch This. Yes. Oh, dear Lord. And I'm one of the commercial voices. On he, what was he satirizing? Can't touch this, I guess. Can't yeah. touch can't this. Watch, yes. Can't yes. watch. And the the thrust of the song is TV is unwatchable because of these commercials. And I think it's Bo Weaver's the other voice. It was me and Bo Weaver, and he wove us into the song. And I, when I did it, I said, I said, I assume there's some reason that I'm doing this, but all I need to do is pretend it's a real commercial and you'll have what you want, I guess. Right. And he said, that's, that's, that's perfect. Let's go. So I really didn't know what he was going to do with it. And I found out months later when it finally came out. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Uh, that's I, my I one and only recording. <laughs> <laughs> one and only uh, stint as a recording artist, if you'll permit me to use that phrase. Hey, just, I'll, I'll that's allow awesome. you record Al, so hey. <laughs> Yeah. So I I do I I do have to ask about uh one of your one of the shows that you that you did and it was a it was unique in that it was a property that was based on a rated R movie and it was the first rated R movie to have uh toys and uh a cartoon actually marketed uh from it. It was Rambo, The Force of Freedom, and you were the voice of Rambo. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, I mean, I mean, did 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 you seek that one out, or did did they did they come to you for it? No, that was uh, you know the general call went out, <clears throat> and uh, my agent said, "Do you want to read for uh, Rambo?" And I said, sure, why not? So I went over there, and I got in front of the mic, and they got on the thing. Now, before you do anything, uh, we want to emphasize, we don't want a Sylvester Stallone sound-alike. 
I said, got it. And then I start talking like this, you know, and I thought I'll make them laugh, you know, and then I'll do the real audition. And I'm so I'm doing that. And they go, that's perfect. I said, I thought you didn't want a Stallone sound alike. They said, that doesn't sound like Sylvester Stallone. And I said, you're right. It doesn't because I'm no dummy. <laughs> and so I went ahead and I ended up doing 65 episodes in this voice that didn't sound like Sylvester Stallone. And if you think about it with Shipwreck and the Nicholson connection and then Rambo, basically the bulk of my career is based on doing lousy impressions. You know, <laughs> if, I was, if I was actually good at doing impressions, I wouldn't have gotten any of these jobs. They said, oh, that's too close. No, no, we'll get sued. But <laughs> They heard so what now, I was doing, and they, they, they said, this is perfect. So so now my question is, who were you impersonating when you got the role for Springer? Uh, Springer, uh, that was sort of an all-purpose uh, hero voice. that uh, It wasn't really an impression of anybody. It just... Uh, A lot of testosterone and masculinity. Testosterone to the max. And, uh, and you know, it, that, that's all it was. It wasn't based on anybody. Okay. Now, you have done a couple other Marvel shows, since we are a Marvel podcast. You were Fing Fam Foom, an Iron Man. Yes. I'm trying and to Howard Stark. how it sounded. Was he, he was some something like this, I, I believe, down here and very... <laughs> wow. So, so you you did that role for for a few episodes. Yeah, I can't remember exactly how many, but yeah, yeah, he was a recurring character. And and, mm-hmm. and then they throw you throw you in one other as Blizzard. Yeah, don't ask me to do that. I don't have any memory of that at all. <laughs> no, seriously, do I you, don't. Do you have any uh, recollection of doing uh, Howard Stark? Doing what? Howard Stark. Howard Stark. No, I don't. I don't think he did. Howard. It, it, it says he did. Uh, Wikipedia says he did. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now this what, is what show, now, is I, that? Hmm? what show are we talking about? Iron We're Man. talking about Howard Stark being his dad. Being whose dad? Tony Stark. Tony Stark's dad. Okay, it's possible. You know, now, they might have just thrown that one at me. Was he? He wasn't in too many episodes, was he? Uh, uh, not that I remember. No, I don't remember that. That yeah, was said probably did, uh, a quick one. You know, hey, would you do this one? And oh, okay. You know, it you says know. you did Doctor Doom. Do you remember that one? Oh yeah. Blow, blow, blow my my transition. I was going to say, <laughs> gentlemen, we we have we have interviewed the original live action Doctor Doom with Joseph Culp. Yeah. I present yeah. to you. Neil Ross, the 1994, which is also one of the better Fantastic Four cartoons, Dr. Mm-hmm. Doom. Uh, Dr. Doom had a German accent, as I recall. And was he was he down here? It's been a while. I can't recall, but uh, yes, no, I remember very well doing Dr. Doom. Well, if it was Dr. Doom now, aging, I think yeah. it would still be right there. But he, uh. I want to say Doom was maybe a little higher pitch. Not by much. I am Dr. Doom. <laughs> no, I think that's too high. That's too high. Yes. That's Dudley Do-Right gone bad. <laughs> that is. <laughs> I'm, I'll save you now. <laughs> I couldn't do that, by the way. That was some other guy. But that, it's, I would have to go back and listen to a reference tape on Dr. Doom, but it was me, yes. Guilty as charged. Also, too. They, 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 they would make his voice a little more metallic, too, because yeah, you yeah. usually see armor. So. That's yeah. right. He was talking through his uh, helmet. So. <laughs> Neil also played Super Scroll. Yeah. It's a, one of the first times we see scrolls on screen. Mm-hmm. And Puppet Master. Oh, wow. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. This box set I do have. Ah. Yes. Is that I think the Fantastic Season one? one, or is that the Marvel uh, Afternoon box set? Uh, no, it, it's. I want to say the show aired on Saturdays only. No, it was part of the. It was part of the Marvel Afternoon because you got you 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 got uh, Hulk, Captain. Uh, no, you got Hulk 
and Iron Man and Fantastic Four. Okay, this this would have been a period where I was going through the audio school here in Orlando to become an audio engineer, so I missed out. Mm. <laughs> so I could be someone on the other side of the of the desk or the console recording Neil, which is, would be, uh. if I wasn't working at Disney, that would be one of my dream jobs, re-recording voiceover actors. I got to tell you parenthetically, and I put it in the book, you know, I love 99.9999% of the actors that I worked with. Just the greatest people you'd ever want to meet, voice actors. But I also have tremendous affection for the engineers I've worked with over the years. They have saved my bacon on more than one occasion. And the engineers, at least out here in Los Angeles, uh, they are just spectacularly professional and just a joy to work with. And uh, they don't get a, a, enough credit, in my opinion. Well, I will I will speak for them, and I will say thank you very much for every audio engineer out there. Because um, part of our job is to go unrecognized and make our talent sound as as golden as can be. Well, on behalf of the talent, we appreciate it. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a team effort. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, just, Speaking you know, of talent. That's engineer. I'm just talking into a tin can. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I uh, thought you had thought you had done. But uh, speaking of of talents and team efforts, I remember a story off of the uh, Transformers uh, you know, making of DVD uh, where you actually had a mini directorial role uh, with uh, oh, Lionel Stander. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I was not directing him, but... Yeah, I'll tell you the story. Uh, Lionel Stander was a fascinating uh, old guy. He, I think he was the oldest person involved in, in, in making the Transformers movie. I don't know how old he was at the time that we did it, but I looked him up later, and he's, he was actually old enough to have, have appeared in a silent movie when he was a teenager in New York. Uh, and just uh, he's really worth reading up on or just a fascinating uh, uh, character, character actor. And he had a voice like this, you know, I'm Lionel. I mean, he had this voice, that, this name that sound. Oh, here's Lionel Stander. Hello, everyone. Frightfully decent to meet all of you. But, you know, with a name like that, you think you're going to meet a well-educated, uh, sophisticated Englishman. Instead, you got a guy who sounded like this, you know. And he had he told these amazing stories and he was a lot of fun to work with. Anyway, we're recording and they had set the mics up in a line. We're all standing side by side in a line in front of our assigned microphones. And I notice Lionel keeps trying to make eye contact with somebody when he does a line, which meant that he was getting off mic because he'd be looking, trying to make eye contact and, and he would go off mic. And while he would go, I'm sorry, you're off mic, uh, Lionel. We got to do it again. And Lionel didn't really know what the problem was. <laughs> and mm -hmm. Wally never looked at us. He just stared at the storyboard so he couldn't see what was happening. So I l peeked ahead on the script and I realized I didn't have any lines for a while. So I tiptoed out from behind my microphone and I stood in front of Lionel. And now he could make co eye contact with somebody as he did his line. And so every time he did a line, he'd look at me and I'd look at him and everything was hunky-dory. And then when I saw my line was coming up, I tiptoe back in front of the mic and do my line. And, and that's how we got we got through that whole scene. And I told that story at a convention I was appearing at with Wally and he's sitting next to me and he, he was just flabbergasted. He said, I never had a, I, I never knew that was happening. I said, well, you know, that's because you never looked at us, Wally. <laughs> You'd be amazed at the things you didn't see over the years. But uh, yeah, so I didn't really direct him. I just gave him somebody to make eye contact with because he was, you know, guy from the stage and movies. He playing a scene he needed to look at somebody and so yeah of, of all the of all the shows that you have um done voices on what's been one of your favorites oh well i mean uh gi joe and transformers are the gift that just keeps on giving if anybody had told us when we were doing it that anybody would give a rat's backside about it 30, 35 years later, we'd have said, you're insane. This stuff will be long forgotten. Oh, no. And uh, it, 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 it's far from forgotten. It's, uh, it's become more and more revered over the years. We get to go to conventions uh, all over the country, all over yeah. the world. I've, I've 
been to England <laughs> to a convention. And uh, and, and Hasbro re- re- is releasing them during this time of the virus with that shall remain nameless on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah I, 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 yeah. I was aware of that. Somebody told me about that. That's great. <laughs> I mean, they made they made Shipwreck a Navy SEAL. Like uh, Shipwreck was such a popular character. I guess they're like, well, we need to beef him up again. Beef him up some more. I, I didn't think he needed to be beefed up anymore. They, they made him a SEAL. And even when I still read the G.I. Joe comics, I'm, t- I'm still hearing your voice. So... <laughs> <laughs> Yep, pretty much. It's drilled every time I see it. Brain. Now, every time I see a shipwreck action figure, I hear your voice. Yep. Now, I mentioned in your introduction that um, your shipwreck outranked you. Yeah. Yeah. You were you were in the navy yourself. Yes. Yes. Uh, that's part of what helped me with the character because obviously you had the Nicholson connection. But then I I was in uh, I was in the Navy for two years, uh, served at Sink Pack Fleet in uh, Pearl Harbor, and I used to see guys kind of like him, uh, career guys mostly, and uh, they just skated on this side of insubordination. You know, they <laughs> they. They kind of marched to the beat of their own drum, and they'd been in long enough to know how they could get away with stuff. And they usually did get away with it. They never got caught or never got in a great deal of trouble, but they were—they always had some kind of a scam going. <laughs> and uh, so I, 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 I used a little bit of that in, in, in working on the character as well. But I only made it up uh, to E4, and I believe he's an E7, something like that. So, so when you're when you walk in and you see your character uh, when you see shipwreck on, on the boards, did you have to salute yourself? <laughs> well, enlisted people don't salute each other, so I didn't have that dilemma. It, he was an E seven, then uh, then became an E eight. Right. Okay. <clears throat> well, I was an E four who became a civilian. <laughs> and we're both uh, from San Diego, kind of. Yeah. That's where I went to high school. I kind of consider it my hometown. And he he's from the Chula Vista area of San Diego. And I'm from uh, the Ocean Beach section of San Diego. Oh, that's so, cool. Yeah. So it's almost so, like the character was written for you to begin with. Yeah. There are <laughs> there you go. It's odd connections. Yeah. Yeah. And I wow. swore I'd never put another uniform on. But <laughs> Conventions <laughs> back in the sailor suit again. <laughs> now, prior an E eight. Now you were also you you were also involved in the original Voltron. Yes, as, uh-huh. as Keith and Pidge. Right. Right. So I know they're not Marvel, but they were still during this time period of, of the afternoon cartoons. Um, what stories do you have about Voltron? Because um, I, I know there was it was different in Japan than it was here. Mm-hmm. Um, just how how much differences were there between the actual episodes? I mean, were you guys just doing straight overdubs, or was it a lot of cut and paste? Yeah, the story that that I was uh, given was uh, the the whole thing was the brainchild of a guy named Peter Keefe. And uh, when this deregulation happened that we talked about earlier, uh, there was a scramble for product. And he got the idea of going to Japan and leasing some already existing shows and just dubbing them. So he bought actually three shows, but he, I think he only ended up using two of them. And they started trying to translate them and just do a straight dub. And for various reasons, that wasn't working. So believe it or not, they commissioned original scripts. And then they would comb through the video that they had trying to find video that would fit these scripts that somebody had written. Can you imagine trying to do something like that? It would, wow. Trying to do a three-dimensional uh, jigsaw puzzle. I mean, I was not involved in any of this, but that's how it happened. And so because essentially I would show up or any of the actors and there would be the script and to the right of your line would be a number like 6.7. And that was the number of seconds that the character's mouth moved. So you had to do the line in 6.7 seconds. They would allow you to do 6.6 or 6.8, but it had to be in that, in that time slot. Oh, wow. And because we were doing it that way, we couldn't work as a cast. We had to work individually. Oh, wow. And so you, you, it was a, it was an exercise in concentration because you're playing a scene and you'd have to imagine 
the other person's feed line to you and then react to that imaginary line reading and get it into 6.7 seconds. And it was, it was, it was a lot of work. I mean, the longer, some of the longer lines that went like 20 seconds and more, it was just maddening. They go, that's, that's perfect, but it's a a second too long. Oh, Oh, now that's a second too short. Well, now you're wow. two seconds too long. Well, now you're short again, and it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> well, I, I did, well, speaking of Voltron, um, I, I was telling a friend about who about you that we're going to be interviewing you, and I, I was gushing all about all about the GI Joe and shipwreck stuff, but and she was okay with that, but she is a huge. Uh, Voltron fan, and so uh, she asked if it would be possible if if uh, if I would ask you to give her a shout out in uh, your Keith voice, if possible. Of course. What what is her name? Leah. Leah. Yes. Okay. Now I gotta find the voice, my original Tommy teenage voice. I think this is kind of in the ballpark. Leah was the name. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's form Voltron. Leah, you can. You can be the Green Lion. How's that? I forget who actually pilots the Green Lion, but he's out of a job. You're the pilot. Let's form Voltron. I think you just kicked Pidge out. But you know what? I think she's doing Come on. <laughs> Oh. oh my gosh! Oh boy, that's awesome. You know, it, it's funny. It's it, it. If we look at the the member list on on this recording session, there's only one person we're talking to. But if you just listen to it, it's like how many people have we listened to so far? We've listened to Jonathan Winters. We've listened to Lester Stallone, Jack Nicholson, Shipwreck, uh, Shipwreck, Buzzer, yeah, Buzzer, um, uh, uh, Lionel Standish, no, not Standish, uh, Miles Standish, Lionel Stander. There you go. They're always mistaken for each other, so don't worry about <laughs> it. Dolly do right. You know, maybe he was old enough to come over on the Mayflower. I don't know. Fin Fang Foom. Fin Fang Foom. Yes. Yeah, Norman Osborne. Springer. Yep. <laughs> that, that, that's a big cast. Yeah. That's a huge cast. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. It, 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 there was a certain point where I was doing so many different characters that I had to carry this little tape or little cassette player around with me in the car. And before I go into the session, I'd have to play the reference tape to try to remember which voice I was doing. In, in, uh, in uh, you know, where am I this this week? <laughs> which out student- of all these characters, is are there any that stick out in your mind as ones that were really fun to do, but maybe don't get as much attention as like the shipwrecks and the springers? Yeah, there's one character that's very near and dear to my heart, and that was in a show called uh, The Attack of the Killer Tomato. Yes. And- yeah. Yes. <laughs> And it takes place in the uh, fictional uh, Southern California beach town of San Zucchini. Yeah. And uh, there's a, a broadcaster there. He appears to be the only broadcaster in the town. And his name was Whitley White. And Whitley White, uh, anytime anybody turns a radio on or a television on, Whitley White is on. And sometimes on television, Whitley's the anchor man, and then he throws it to himself in the field. Here with that report is Whitley White. Thank you, Whitley. I'm here at the, you know. And they wrote this wonderful uh, dialogue for him, and I sort of based him on this uh, broadcaster in Southern California who was a TV anchor man, and then later he did a talk show. And he was one of these old time broadcasters, he would remind you, yes, my career began at WSTP in Minneapolis, where I beat out 500 other people for an announcing position, and he was he was, he was was like Ted Baxter, you know, it all started at a 5,000-watt station in Fresno. <laughs> <laughs> they would write him these long speeches, and I would go into this voice, and I would be just this close to cracking up. I never actually did, but I was just on the verge of losing it all the way through that. And I, I really looked forward to doing Whitley. And the show is uh, sadly not uh, as well remembered as G.I. Joe and Transformers, but I had a lot of fun being Whitley White. So you you were also on another show that I loved to death as well. And it's the Biker Mice from Mars. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, I didn't... Um, what was it? What did I play in that? I think I was only in a few episodes. Uh, I have to check. No, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I saw that you you did a... And I don't even know how you would have even done this, but you did a voice in a, a cartoon that I really loved, but I don't think people even remember it now. It was Bionic 6, yeah. and you played Fee. Yeah, Fluffy. I used to watch that. I love that I watched show. Bionic 6. Yeah. You did? Hey, so I, it wasn't just me by myself. I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad for that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that, that show was a delight to do, largely because of the director, a guy named Howard Morris. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and he was just a lovely guy, lovely to work with. And uh, we had a tremendous amount of fun doing that show. But it's one of those that uh, just didn't stand the test of time for whatever reason. Yeah. yeah. No, it's just... It, you know, it, it, it was one of those things like it seemed like and I don't know, maybe it's just because of the time, because there were so many shows out there at that point. And, you know, some caught on, some didn't. Yeah. But, yeah. But that, now, that was- not just you've done not just TV shows and, and movies. You've done a ton of video games. Uh, are there any particular fa- favorites that stand out in your in your mind from the from the video games? Um. Well, selfishly, it's the ones that stand out are the ones that people seem to remember and reference. And um, uh, I'm spacing the name of the character now in uh, Metal Gear Solid. Oh, Colonel Colonel Volgen or Volgen. Oh, oh yes. yes. Yeah. I never know how to pronounce the, the damn name. Is it a hard G or a soft G? I always get it wrong. It's a hard G. And he, he was my, it's sort of my failed attempt to do Don LaFontaine. Do you know who Don LaFontaine was? Yes. Yes. He did all the trailers, Die Hard, and all of this. And this was sort of my stupid impression of of Don LaFontaine. And uh, it ended up being Colonel Volgen or Colonel Volgen, however he says. <laughs> <laughs> But fans seem to remember that character, and a lot of the other games, not so much. But, and then I did one recently, uh, Rage Two, and I was—I uh, forget the, the scientist's name, the character, but he was a lot of fun to play. Kvasir. And, uh, that's right, Doctor Kvasir. Thank you very much. That was a lot of fun to do. And I actually did uh, some, not motion capture, but facial capture for that one. They put dots on my face and uh, I looked looked like I had something that would make COVID-19 look like a walk in the park. (laughs) (laughs) I still have a picture of that on my iPhone. It's very disturbing. I was uh, rather surprised uh, to uh, to see your name attached with this particular game. It's a uh, what I call a butt obscure PlayStation One game, uh, Star Wars Masters of Terrascazi. I hmm. remember I, I had that game and I thought, well, this is actually pretty cool because it's actually you know it's Star Wars meets Mortal Kombat. And uh, and you voiced Han Solo and one other character in that game. And then I look at uh, the other Star Wars games. You showed up as Han Solo quite a bit. Yeah, I did. People ask about that. And they asked me, did they ask you to imitate Harrison Ford? And uh, I said, no, I wouldn't even know how to start. Um, you know who can do a great impression of him is Mark Hamill. I saw that on, on YouTube the other night. He was on some English talk oh, wow. show. Did this this great uh, Harrison Ford impression? So if, maybe they could call him next time. But <laughs> no, they just they do these lines and sound like a you know a testosterone filled uh, adult male. And I said, you got it. And uh, no, and I, I don't know if it does sound like like Han Solo. Does it? Do think- I thought so at the time, but it's okay. been quite a while since I played it. But. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I lucked out. I don't know. <laughs> now, even though it was a one shot, you you also got to do probably one of the biggest Warner Brother characters on probably one of the best Warner Brothers afternoon shows, starring Maurice and Rob Paulson mm-hmm. with Pinky and the Brain. You did Marvin the Martian. Oh yeah, I was just thinking about that uh, tonight. Oddly enough, because <laughs> we're, 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 we're in sync. Which won't go into, but. I haven't done that in a long time. You <laughs> things are are very strange. I I will have to work on this one. You can tell it's uh, it's hanging by a thread. But yes, yes, I did do Marvin the Martian. <laughs> oh no! 
coming back to me now. Unfortunately, it has come to that time. I'm not, oh. I'm not, I know, I know. I'm going to pose that one final question. Where can people find you online? Uh, well, I am on Facebook uh, as uh, Neil Ross, cleverly enough. And um, I have a website that's really for casting people to evaluate my work. But anyone is welcome to go there and listen to the demos. And that's uh, cleverly called neilross.com. I paid a consultant a fortune to come up with that for me. <laughs> and then if you're interested in the book, as I said at the top of the show, it's neilbook.com, N-E-I-L-B-O-O-K.com. That's our little jingle. <laughs> and of course, you can also find the book on Audible. Apple and Amazon. So check it out. Uh, I know we have read it. Uh, I used quite a bit from your chapters on G.I. Joe, Transformers, and other shows for my notes for tonight. Uh, it's a great read. I, I, I'm i loving it. I, I need to go back and read some of the stuff that I did skip so I could get to, because I, I read what was pertinent for tonight. Sure. And, and I loved all the stories, especially um, like I said, the, the stuff about Jonathan Winters. Um, you know, like the first time he comes up behind you after you went to the bathroom and he said, did you oh. drop a log? I, I laughed. <laughs> I laughed hard when I read that. Um, and then you know, laughing during the whole Rodney King riots and you're going, uh, you got asked, so you were in the car with him the whole time and you're talking about the riots, not anything else. Like, wow, yeah, I, I, this was within a few days of, of, of the I don't think the had the riot happened yet. No, the riot had not happened because that happened. Well, it, it's an unfortunate time period. Yeah. And I'm well on it. But the incident had occurred and the okay. video of what had happened had been broadcast. Everybody had seen it. He asked me to give him a ride, uh, and I did, and we got in the car, and these cops went by, and they kind of give us the eye, and Jonathan said something like, uh, man, you know, I, 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 I'm looking at cops through different eyes these days, and we started talking about the whole Rodney King thing all the way to the place he wanted to go, and I dropped him off, and that was that, and I was talking to a friend of mine who was also a huge Jonathan Winters fan, and I told him about this, and he said, are you kidding me? You had the funniest man in the world in your car, and all you talked about was Rodney King? He's like, what's the matter with you? you know? I thought, yeah, he's right. You know, But it was one of the few times that uh, Jonathan stopped doing shtick and actually spoke. Yeah. You know? And, and then the, the whole thing about autographing the picture. What? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, when you got the response back, you, you knew he was joking, right? Or or was or was he being somewhat serious about it with his comment? Well, no, I, I think he was serious. I was the one who was joking. What happened was the show had ended, so I wasn't seeing him on a regular basis. And we had taken a, a picture together, and I wanted to get it autographed. And we had the same agent, so I went to my agent, and I said, do you think uh, you could get Jonathan to sign this for me? And she said, oh, of course, of course. Do you want him to write anything else? I said, oh, just some, you know, simple little thing like to the greatest young actor it's ever been my privilege to know, whatever. And I was joking. And she took me seriously and she asked him to write that. And he said, uh, Donna, I can't do that. He's not. <laughs> <laughs> And she told me about it. And I said, you didn't tell him that. I was kidding. <laughs> oh, I was I was mortified. Uh, but, mor you know. Mortified by the fact that she did it or he made the yeah, comment? The fact that she, he would now think that, that I sincerely wanted him to write uh, something, you know, which <laughs> wouldn't presume to suggest he write something, uh, like that, you know. And I never got a chance to see him again and tell him, you know, my side of it. <laughs> Too bad. Uh, well, thank you for joining us. Uh, it has definitely been our honor to have you on. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. I had a lot of fun. And uh, so, again, go check out his book on Amazon, on Audible, on Apple Audiobooks, at neilbook.com. You can order a hard copy of it or digital copy, I think. I have not been to the site yet because you sent it to us right before show. Well, it's paperback, it's uh, Kindle, and it's audio. Awesome. So take uh, and on that note, there's only one thing left to do. Thursday, if you would, please. All wrapped up here, sir. Will there be anything else? Nope. Just time to go dark. <laughs>